Walking with Jesus, serving with love, and sharing with courage. Welcome to the Pecan Podcast. Hello, friends. It is Pastor Courtney Ellis. So good to be with you this week on the podcast. I have a very special couple of guests with us today. Uh, Back by popular demand, this was our most popular podcast guest ever. Uh, Dr. Ian Ellis and his wife, Sonia, are back with us today. Uh, Dr. Ian is no relation to Daryl and I, uh, despite sharing the same last name. Um, his wife Sonia and I met in uh, in college, and we've been friends. And um, he is a trained emergency room physician. He trained at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, is where he did his residency, and now he is working at a hospital in Texas. And his wife, Sonia, is a professional actor. She has not been doing any acting lately. Uh, They have three kids, and since Ian is on the front lines, Sonia has been managing things on the home front. But they are just chock full of wisdom and kindness. And I brought a lot of the questions that I've been hearing from you to Dr. Ian. So as we prepare to head into the holidays and maybe thinking, what's safe? What isn't safe? What should I do? Um, how can I make sure um, I'm approaching things with the best wisdom and knowledge possible? Um, I asked Ian to come on and answer some of those questions for us. So this is a really special episode, friends. It's a little longer than normal, um, but I think it's well worth it to glean some wonderful wisdom from Dr. Ian and his wife, Sonia. Um, And also coming up on Thursday of this week, Thanksgiving Day, we are finishing our Gratitude and Giveaways series with your stories. So many of you wrote in with wonderful stories of gratitude. So that is a special Thanksgiving gift from me to you. Two podcast episodes this week today, Dr. Ian and his wife, Sonia, and on Thursday, the finale of the gratitude and giveaways. All right, friends, with that, let us turn to the interview with Dr. Ian Ellis and Sonia Ellis. Ian and Sonia, welcome back to the PECOM podcast. Hey, thank Hi. you. Thanks for having us. You guys are some of our most popular guests ever. So thank you for taking the time to be with us. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. <laughs> well, a lot is a lot of water has, has washed under the bridge since we talked last. Yeah, say more about that, Ian. So you're you're on the front lines of this. What is the hardest part of your job right now? my job right now. So it's changed a lot. I don't remember exactly uh, how far into the pandemic we were when we first spoke or when I first did the podcast. I know it was relatively early on. Uh, It's a whole different ballgame now. Um, We have learned so much about COVID, uh, how to identify it, how to treat it, what we need to do to keep ourselves safe and to keep our patients safe and to keep our families safe. And so a lot of the mystery uh, is gone, which is a good thing. (laughs) I know a little mystery is good in relationships, uh, not so great (laughs) in 
not so great in uh, worldwide pandemics. So um, it's great that we know so much more. We've made so much progress in all those areas I mentioned before. And so it, it's actually a lot easier than it was back then. Um, I'd say, whereas before it was, uh, there was a lot of anxiety with treating it, anxiety with how to protect myself, how to identify the patients that I needed to treat. Um, now, to be completely honest, uh, the hardest part is that it's so boring. <laughs> I mean, it really is. We see so many patients. It's definitely the real deal. Cases have shot up uh, since we spoke last. So we're seeing a really large number of patients, but it's really monotonous at this point. It's the same patient over and over and over again with the same symptoms and the same prognosis and the same medications and the same disposition, you know, based on their oxygen. If your oxygen is low, you stay. If your oxygen is high, you go home. And, you know, here's a sheet of paper with some things to do to protect yourself, protect other people. So it's pretty routine at this point. Um, you know, a little uh, add on to that. So for example, PPE or how to protect ourselves in the ER. When we first spoke, I know a lot of uh, ERs, myself, uh, or mine as well, we're wearing full body suits and sanitizing surfaces over and over a couple times every hour and being truly neurotic about, you know, the layers and layers of equipment we were wearing. And all that has been gradually stripped away as we understand more and more about how coronavirus is spread. And all that is left is an N95 mask. Um, that's what I wear to protect myself. I don't wear anything else actually. Um, I treat everyone else as I would any other patient. Of course, I wear gloves and wash my hands like I would with any patient. Um, but we've learned uh, that this is a disease that is spread primarily through the air, uh, in close contact, indoors, in poorly ventilated spaces with face-to-face -face interactions. And if you can protect your face, you can protect your nose and mouth, um, you really can go about uh, your interactions in a relatively stress-free way, and at least I do in the ER. I don't worry at all uh, about contracting coronavirus while I'm at work. Um, as evidence of that, I have not yet contracted coronavirus, and I've taken care of hundreds probably at this point. So Sonia, one of the one of the gifts of this pandemic for me has been you and I got back in touch. We were friends when we were studying abroad in Oxford and we've become deeper friends through this pandemic. So I want to ask you the same question. What is the hardest part of your life right now? Because um, every essential worker has someone standing behind them, whether that's a spouse or a, or a parent or a child, right? It's, it's, it's all on Ian, but it's also on you. Tell us a little bit about your life and how your life has changed. How my life has changed. Well, I, I, I definitely feed off of how anxious he is with relations to the, with relation to the pandemic. So to see him kind of um, relax as we learn more things has been nice. Um, I have, I, I have sense, especially with the surge and them being short staffed at his hospital that there's been a little more stress as he's come home the last few times. Um, so I, I, I kind of pick up on that, but my, my hard stuff is really 
it's hard to see, you know, friends or family making choices that aren't necessarily safe, knowing that that in turn impacts our friends working the ERs, working the ICUs, and um, and just kind of knowing what an impact that has on our society at large firsthand versus someone who may not have someone in healthcare, doesn't really know what's happening in the hospitals, isn't, you know, really aware. So that's, that's hard for me um, to watch that. Um, but we're hanging in there. Yeah, I think just kind of dovetailing onto that, it's been so challenging throughout this pandemic um, as the information we have has been changing so quickly and so many stakeholders in this pandemic, be they political, medical, uh, relational, uh, economic, um, all those perspectives come with their own particular flavor and intention. You know, whether the intention from the economic side is to open things up, well, that's in conflict with uh, some of the medical side of maybe staying home for longer. Um, it's certainly at great cost economically. Um, and the, you know, huge costs relationally that this pandemic has inflicted on all of us, um, you know, time away from friends and family, not seeing grandparents and, you know, Sonia's grandma is uh, over a hundred years old. Uh, she's in a nursing facility and we haven't seen her since the no. pandemic started. Um, and yeah. every day that goes by, we wonder if it, it could be her last day on earth and us not having been able to see her. So that's in great conflict with, uh, you know, the um, pressure uh, from a lot of ways to stay home. Um, so as we've gone through this and learned more, uh, it's been very, very challenging because every person uh, comes at this from their own perspective, their own immediate environment, their own um, maybe priorities uh, based on the life that they live, where they live, how they live. And, uh, you know, one of the truisms of this pandemic is everyone that's a little more uh, maybe free than you uh, is crazy. And everyone that's a little more cautious is paranoid and irrational. And so every single person has this world they look onto. Everyone has their own unique perspective and nobody else seems to share that exact perspective. So it's uh, very easy to run into conflict with the people around you, the organizations around you, with your church, with your work, uh, with your, uh, you know, your political leanings, you know, all those things come into play. And it just feels like there's potential for conflict everywhere all the time. And it's hard to find an agreement. And for myself, for example, you know, Sonia and I, uh, we've had our own challenges throughout the pandemic because my understanding of this disease changes very quickly. You know, I have eyes and boots on the ground, as it were. And so I may emerge from a shift, having had several conversations with other doctors or read something on the bleeding edge of something that's new and come home and act differently than I did when I left and leave Sonia confused 
and wondering, wait, wait, why, why are you, why are you not wiping down the Doritos <laughs> bag anymore? Right. I don't understand. We're supposed to Clorox that what happened? <laughs> yeah. And so it's been incumbent on me to keep her actually up to date and abreast of, of what's changed. Uh, because even as my spouse, it's been very hard for her to keep up with, okay, exactly where are we now? What are we doing now? What are the precautions we're taking now? How has this changed from and a week ago? Yeah. Say, I would love for you to say more about that because I think that's one of the criticisms I've heard a lot is, well, the doctor said this and now they say this, they said this and they said that. So we can't believe them at all. But I think what you're saying is doctors and scientists learn and that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing we know more about COVID now than we did in April and we're able to take different precautions and lean more on the put on a really good mask and less on the Clorox, the Doritos. I don't miss that either. <laughs> the phase of Cloroxing the Doritos was really rough. We're still doing that. Um, and that's why it's a challenge because everyone, it seems like everyone's on a slightly different, if, if not a different page, a different line on the, the same page, you know? And so it's hard. Uh, it's hard as a society and as individuals to keep up. Um, and to be well-informed. And there certainly are some bad actors in our world and society that willfully feed misinformation into our lives. And it's very, very difficult, uh, particularly without experience or a medical background to kind of sift out the wheat from the chaff there. Um, <sighs> so who should we listen to? Who should we trust? Because that's something that I've heard from a lot of congregants is I just don't know who to trust. I turn on the news and it says this. I turn on the other news channel and it says that, you know, do you have some go-to websites or figures or doctors? Where, where can we send our people? Because I do think a lot of folks mean well, but they do, they get stuck in the April of wiping down the groceries or they get stuck in the, um, yeah, like w how do we adapt and where do we go for that information? Yeah. And if anyone does have a specific question for me, I would be more than happy to answer it, or at least the very least, uh, give them a link to a reliable source, um, to get that answer. Um, so that's fine with me as far as, you know, my email address or, or, uh, I, was, I would say social media accounts, but I don't get on Facebook anymore <laughs> because of all this stuff. Um, now, who can who can people go to? I'd say number one, uh, find uh, in your personal life, find a doctor who actually sees this with their own two eyes. Talk to an ER doc that sees COVID. Don't talk to an OB/GYN that hasn't seen patients in six months because they're shut down because of COVID. You know, like if you really want good information, find someone who actually sees it and ask them what they think. You know, ask them if they think it's real. Ask them if they have seen patients in their ER this week or not. Um, I see you doctors as well. Yeah, I see you doctors. Absolutely. Um, beyond that, I, I'd probably stay away from mainstream media sites. You know, if it's on one of the big four or five mainstream media sites, uh, those sites are so irredeemably biased on one side or the other at this point uh, that I just don't see good information coming out of them. And not necessarily there's, there's not good information, but good information that's presented in such a way that won't turn you off if you maybe share an opposite political perspective. Um, 
And I think that's the challenge because a lot of these stories do have good information, but they're presented in such a way that belittles the other side or uh, ridicules the other side. And it just, it's human nature to read that and respond against it and to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So if you're going to read something from a media site, you have to be aware of your bias, be aware of their bias and do your best to throw that stuff out and just get to the meat of, okay, what are they saying here? Uh, What is the point of this article? Is there some real science here uh, that I can take home and, you know, put into my everyday life? That's Um, really helpful. You asked before as far as, okay, science changes and, and our knowledge changes. I will be the first to admit, uh, and Sonia knows very well that I admit this quite vocally uh, around the house, uh, the governing bodies that we depend on, and I say we in the medical field, not just we across the nation, um, we depend on the CDC to give us good information. We depend on the WHO to give us good information. We depend on the American Medical Association to give us good unbiased information. We depend on medical journals to give us good unbiased information. And those governing bodies have done a very, very bad job throughout this pandemic of giving us good, reliable, unbiased, unpolitical information. And I I just say that to validate the feelings of millions and millions and millions of Americans who feel jerked around, who feel confused, who feel like these people contradict themselves every other day, sometimes more than once a day. And, you know, then one step removed, these people don't even practice what they preach. You know, we see these news stories of people that say to do one thing and maybe they're on camera doing something else that very next day. It's really, it's infuriating actually from a medical perspective because it makes it so much harder than it has to be. Um, COVID is easy. No, I didn't say it's, it's mild. You wear a good mask. You stay outdoors. You don't interact face-to-face indoors without a mask. If you, if you don't do that, you're not going to get it. <laughs> so know? I can do Thanksgiving. I just need to wear a good mask. I can go inside. My extended family, 35 people, we all love each other very much. We can hug. We can be together. We can all eat the food. And we just put our masks on afterwards and we're good. Is that what you're telling me? Let's go through that in detail (laughs) because there's some validity to what you're saying, but there's also some huge caveats. Okay. And the devil with this is in the details. And I think that's, what's challenging for people is they want a one size fits all solution for every environment. We don't do nuance. Well, we do sound bites, Thanksgiving, thumbs up, thumbs down. And and COVID doesn't care about your thumbs. (laughs) (laughs) It's there, there is a lot of nuance and you have to, the way to navigate it is to realize, okay, number one, surfaces are not a big deal. This is not how COVID is transmitted. If it is even transmitted that way, is it an, it is in extremely rare cases, sharing the same coat rack when you come into those things are not important. So you don't need to waste 
your valuable brain cells worrying about that aspect. Throw that away. Don't worry about contact transmission. Okay, that's a huge thing that people worry about and it takes up a lot of space in their minds worrying about what they touched, when they touched, can I touch this person? How close can I get? Um, contact transmission is not really a thing with COVID. That's number one. Number two, if you can control the air you take in through your nose and mouth, you can control the virus. Okay, now what does that mean? That's where the nuance comes in, okay? Because all those little micro droplets and micro aerosols that we expel with every breath and with every word, uh, particularly with consonants, uh, <laughs> those things are immediately dispersed by a breeze and hang in the air in a little invisible cloud in front of you and around you when you're indoors in a poorly ventilated space. So Thanksgiving. Okay, if you have to do things indoors, that's where it gets really, really tricky. And that's where it's an individual decision by every individual family being aware of the risks and deciding what you're going to do. Okay, hypothetical number one I'm one of six families. We're all in our 20s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, there's no elderly people around or invited. Uh, hopefully they'd be invited, but maybe they're not in town or they can't make it. Okay. The risk profile of that group is such that a reasonable person could say, you know what, I'm going to do it indoors this year. I might get it. Okay. Chances are that person will be fine, but okay. And there's a huge caveat here. Okay. You're assuming risk for yourself. And you're also assuming risk for every person you come into contact with for the next two weeks. Okay. So that's the decision. Okay. And that's where it, it gets a little heavy is you go, okay, maybe we, as our families, we come to a decision, you know what we've evaluated our own personal risk. This is something we think is worth it because our personal risk is very low from the coronavirus, which again, if you're in their twenties, thirties and forties, that's certainly true. I can't fault people for making that decision to come together in an indoor environment. Okay. Do I recommend it? Of course not. But who am I to judge someone else's personal decision? Now, one step removed from that, the only way you can do that ethically in good conscience in my decision or in my opinion, excuse me, is if you make the decision, I'm going to do this and it's going to change my behavior for the next two weeks. I'm not going to visit someone elderly for the next two weeks. I'm not going to be in another indoor environment with other people that haven't come to this same level of understanding or consent for the next two weeks. If I'm forced to be in that kind of environment, I'm going to wear a high quality mask 100% of the time when I'm indoors. Okay, why? Well, to keep from passing it on from a personal standpoint to someone you care about or and to protect our healthcare system, which certainly is fragile and is very susceptible to being overwhelmed. If everyone in the world decided, you know what, let's just do Thanksgiving and went around about their lives the next two weeks without making those kind of changes, it would be seriously gnarly in the United States 
and seriously gnarly for me at work and for the patients that I'm treating. So that's scenario number one. Young, healthy people get together, make that conscious decision to get together. If there's anyone in that group that's over, let's say 50, and certainly over 60, at your own risk, it's really risky. It is risky business. It's risky like deciding not to put on your seatbelt at a highway speeds. It's risky like deciding to get on a roof when it's raining. Okay. Can it be done? Yeah. Have people done it and survived? Yeah. Have some people done it and not survived? Absolutely. 100%. It's extremely dangerous. So in my personal opinion, advice as a medical professional who sees this every day, just don't do that. <laughs> do it. It's not worth the risk for this one year with a vaccine right around the corner. You know, it's not worth that kind of risk, in my opinion, right now. Now, you may come to a different decision for your own self. That's fine. But think about what you're doing and think about how it affects others and make changes to your life that reflect a conscious thought. Um, if you decide to go to Thanksgiving with 20 different people and one of them might have the coronavirus, you and you meet indoors around a dinner table, you know, make a fair trade. I'm going to do that, but I'm trading the next two weeks of my social life. Okay. I'm putting something in to get something out. Uh, but that whole free lunch, I'm just going to go. I'm not going to think about it and I'm going to go about my life. Uh, you shouldn't do that. You really should not do that. Um, it's not smart for you. It's not smart for the people you're around. And it's very damaging to our healthcare system and to myself, um, who has to treat the downstream effects of these kind of decisions. So I hope that's a balanced perspective. Um, just to recap, contact surfaces don't matter. Air exchange matters a whole lot. Uh, outdoor activities and environments are extremely safe. Maybe put grandma upwind of everyone. <laughs> Number four, uh, if you're indoors and you're not wearing a high quality mask, it is an extremely risky environment for transmission. It may not be risky to you personally if you are younger and healthy, but for transmission of the disease, it is extremely high risk. And if someone is there, most of you will leave with it. <laughs> That's the bottom line. That's not maybe one of you will get it. That's most of you. Absolutely. Yeah. And I really do believe that. It's, it's incredibly contagious in those environments. And it's such a wimp outdoors. So hmm. you know, maybe meet on a, you don't have to meet coronavirus on a neutral playing field. Maybe tilt it in your direction a bit. That's really, really helpful. So I, I want to ask for a few more details there because you've said high quality masks several times. We have wonderful quilters in our church who have made masks for everyone who needs them. So we all have an abundance of fabric masks, which is amazing. And they are very high quality, beautiful fabric masks. But I think you mean something different when you say high quality. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, good, good point. So of course, I'm biased and I'm also very privileged to work in the healthcare field where I have access to N95 masks. Um, an N95 mask is made of a special type of fabric which filters essentially everything out of the air, at least 95%, but probably more of 
any side of, sort of size of particle. And so I can wear an N95 mask face-to-face with a person with coronavirus, have an extended conversation indoors with no ventilation, and walk out of that room whistling a tune uh, inaudibly and muffled under my <laughs> N95 mask. Okay, um, most people don't have access to those kind of masks. Um, and from there, it's kind of a gradual decline in your level of protection. Uh, if you have a three-layer mask of dense cotton fabric, that's pretty good. That's really good, actually. If you have a two-layer mask, that's not quite as good. If you have a single-layer mask of um, you know, loosely woven fabric, um, like your T-shirt, exactly, uh, that really doesn't protect you very well at all. Okay, and so that's where the nuance comes in. You know, everyone says, wear a mask. Well, what kind of mask? Where do I get these masks that work? And what about this mask that I, you know, made myself out of an old T-shirt? Well, it, it probably doesn't work well enough, okay, to protect you from getting it. Now, here is a huge caveat, and it's something that's really important for us to understand. It's really exciting for me as a medical professional. Okay, there's pretty good data that has come out that shows that the level or the, let's say, the number of viral particles you are exposed to at the moment of infection has a huge role to play and is a huge determinant of how sick you're going to get. Okay, and I want everyone to really pay attention to this. Okay, this is not a binary choice. It's not, I'm infected, I'm not infected. Okay, it's a spectrum of, I got a little infected. I got a few viral particles enough to stimulate my immune system to fight it off. I did well, I recovered, I maybe didn't have any symptoms. Two, I wasn't wearing a mask. Someone coughed directly into my face and I inhaled millions of viral particles at one time. Okay, Think of it like this, you're starting a race, okay? And the number of viral particles you take in determines how much of a head start you get. Or conversely, how much of a head start the virus gets, okay? If someone coughs in your face and you're not wearing a mask and you receive this huge inoculum of thousands to millions of viral particles, that virus has a real head start. And it can do a tremendous amount of damage before your immune system gets it under control. You can get really sick. You can end up in the hospital. You can end up on a ventilator. You could die, okay, uh, even if you're young, okay? If you have a huge viral load exposure, um, you can get really sick even as a young person. That's what we saw initially when this first came out in China. We're seeing these young ER docs in their 30s and 40s dying of this disease. And chances are now we understand it's because they were coated and surrounded in enormous levels of virus and weren't wearing proper protection, okay? So how does this relate to masks? There's good evidence that even if a mask isn't good enough to prevent infection, it might still be good enough to prevent you from getting very sick. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. uh, someone coughs in your face, you're not wearing a mask, you're probably going to get pretty sick. And even if you're young, you're probably going to feel really bad for a while before you get better. You put a layer of cotton in between you, you probably still get pretty sick, but not quite as sick. 
you put two layers of cotton, you might have a, a pretty good sized cold and feel bad for a few days. You put three layers of cotton, all of a sudden, maybe you're one of those asymptomatic people who got it, didn't even know about it, maybe felt some sniffles for a few days, thought they had their seasonal allergies and went on their business, okay? Same person, same virus, different outcome based on how well they're controlling that air that they're breathing in, okay? So the way to think about it is, should I wear a mask? The answer is yes, okay? If you're indoors, you should wear a mask. It may not prevent you from getting sick, although it may, okay? Um, if you're wearing an N95 mask, it will, okay? If you're wearing a lower quality mask, it may not prevent you from getting infected, but it will help you to not get as sick. This is common sense, and it's been borne out in the science that we have. It's evolving daily, but it's all in this direction. I, I heard someone describe it this week as the like all of these measures are Swiss cheese, right? Like the mask is Swiss cheese. There are some holes, like hopefully not holes in your mask, but like sometimes the virus will get through your cloth mask somehow, but then you layer distance over that or outdoors over that or right. And now the holes aren't all lining up and you're way more safe than you would have been if you just, it's like airbags and seatbelts, right? It's not my car is airbags, so I won't buckle up. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that statement. And we use that Swiss cheese model to prevent harms in the medical uh, feel all the time, where there's always multiple redundancies. We never depend on one item to completely keep us safe. I just want to take a few minutes to talk about COVID-19 from a mortality standpoint, from a morbidity standpoint, and what we what has changed, what we know now, what are your actual risks, okay? Uh, and trust me when I say it's a good segue actually from our, our, the conversation we just had, because the answers are different than we had in the beginning. Uh, when I look back at my Facebook posts at the beginning, going by the numbers that were coming out of China, uh, exactly. I was sounding the alarm. Okay. We're looking at two to 3 million dead by the end of the year. Okay. That was what the data was telling us. Thank God we were wrong. We were wrong. Um, it's not that bad. Um, it's still bad. It's bad in particular for certain groups of people. Um, but it is way better than we thought. Um, and I'll talk through that in detail here in a moment. Um, part of the challenge uh, as we move through this pandemic is it's very difficult for people to appropriately risk stratify to use some medical terminology. It's either this is nothing, it's not bad and apply that to everyone. Or this is really bad. In fact, it's a super serious thing and apply that to everyone. Uh, unfortunately, again, with the nuance, COVID doesn't work like that. COVID is a very interesting little bug that affects different groups of people very, very differently. And so people ask me, is COVID bad? I say, well, that depends. It really does depend. Um, or, you know, COVID's not really a big deal, is it? Well, 
that may be true for you, but it really depends for someone else. Um, and so let's talk through that just very briefly. Um, the simplest way to divide people up is by age and by their underlying health problems. Okay. If you statistically are under 65, uh, using the very tired comparison of the seasonal flu, um, it's probably about that bad or even a little better. Okay. For most people. Okay. For kids, it's way better than the flu. I mean, trust me, I've seen enough kids with the flu to know they are miserable. Okay. If you're a parent and you've had your kids have the flu, it is not fun. Well, kids with COVID, that's fun because they won't even tell you that they have it. Most of them are completely asymptomatic. They're going about their business. They They're may- bringing it to all their relatives. Yeah, they, exactly. And that's a challenge, right? But for their own personal risk, for your kids, don't worry about them. If you're a mom or a dad that's staying up at night, worried about your kid going to school and worried about them, stop it. Don't worry about them. They statistically are almost certain to be completely fine. And I can't hammer that home enough. You don't need to worry about your little kids. Okay. Teenagers, completely fine. 20s, completely fine. 30s, almost all completely fine. Unless you have some underlying medical problems like you have diabetes and high blood pressure and kidney failure. Maybe you're a 30-year-old who lost the genetic roll of the dice and you have kidney failure on dialysis. Well, yeah, I'm worried about you in your 30s, okay? But if you're healthy in your 30s or even reasonably healthy, you're fine. 40s, still mostly fine, 99.95% fine, okay? Same caveats apply to underlying health conditions. 50s, it's like the flu and guess what? People die of the flu in their 50s sometimes. Okay, it's not a completely innocuous thing. You need to take precautions. I wouldn't want to get the flu if I'm in my 50s, nor should you want to get COVID if you're in your 60 or 50s. 60s, 70s, 80s, there is a good chance you will not be fine. Okay, I wish this was a visual podcast so I could tell you it's a flat line until you get to 60 and then it shoots up at an acute angle. Okay, this is not a gradual increase in risk. This is a, you hit past middle age, you hit retirement age. This is a big deal now. Okay, and not everyone in that age range gets very sick, but the chances of you getting very sick once you hit that age are much, much higher. And if you get to the extremes of age, 70s, 80s, 90s, and you layer on some additional health, you know, medical conditions, um, it's a really, really nasty bug and mortality is many, many times out of the flu, 10 to 20 to 30 times higher than the flu. And so that's kind of the breakdown of risk. If you're of working age and you're reasonably healthy, you're at a reasonable weight, you have nothing to worry about. If you're of working age and you have some underlying health conditions, 
you probably don't want to get this thing. It's not going to be very fun. You may do well, but you may end up with some long-term issues from this, maybe some breathing trouble, maybe some fatigue, maybe some issues that will be with you for some time. If you're above working age, if you're retirement age, you really, really should take precautions. You don't want to get this, especially because the vaccine is right around the corner. You've made it this far. If you're listening to this podcast, just keep doing what you've been doing to keep yourself safe for like two to three more months. And you will have the opportunity to, from what it seems, from what the data shows, at least it's early, but we, it does seem to show this. There's a high quality vaccine that works very, very well that can allow us to return to normal that's right around the corner. From an evidence standpoint, uh, vaccines are very good and vaccines help. And vaccines have probably done more to increase our life expectancy uh, than any other single intervention, probably other than the invention of soap. Okay. Um, So obviously, as a medical professional in the Western world, I believe in vaccines. I think they, they're good. I think that uh, as long as they're well tested and as long as we know that they're safe, um, that it's reasonable to get one. Um, for COVID, should you take the COVID vaccine when it comes out? Um, it's not as simple of a question as for some other diseases because of the nuance that COVID brings to the conversation. If I'm a kid, do I need to get the vaccine? Any honest answer would have to be no. You don't have to. It won't help you because you'll be fine. It will help society at large by contributing to herd immunity. It will prevent transmission from your kid potentially to other vulnerable people. So should you get it from that perspective to protect other people? That's an intensely personal decision. So you have to make your own decisions there. Um, I think it's if it's safe, should you get it? Well, I will. I'm going to have my kids get it. If, you, if you're a high-risk person, if you're in middle age or of after working age, you should get the COVID vaccine. The risk-benefit is so far and away skewed towards benefit that to not get it, uh, well... <laughs> It just doesn't, it, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, if you're 75 years old and you have a 5 to 10% chance of ending up in the hospital in an ICU, uh, potentially with very serious, potentially life-ending complications from this disease, and there's a, a vaccine that is safe, you should get it. Um, if you're someone who's in a lower risk group, but still at risk, again, as I mentioned before, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, particularly with underlying medical conditions, I think you should get it. The risk benefit is way in the direction of benefit to you and to other people.
Bottom line is vaccine, is it safe? Seems to be, the data's still out, it'll be in shortly. Uh, should I get it? As a young person, if you can assume the very small risk of a vaccine, very, very, very small risk of a vaccine to help other people, that is a great choice to make. If you are of working age, should you get it? Almost certainly yes, you should get it. If you are of past working age, retirement age, uh, you should get the vaccine. It will benefit you um, and will allow our society to return to normal very quickly if a lot of people take this. And we all want that. I want that. My wife wants that. Our families want that. Our society needs that. <laughs> and this is all we have. Um, it's not going to come from anywhere else. Masks are not going to get us there. Social distancing is not going to get us there. Lockdowns are not going to get us there. Nothing is going to get us there except for a vaccine. And thank God we have a vaccine, actually multiple vaccines right around the corner. There is an end date to this pandemic if we can jump on board safely and get immunized and this can be in the rearview mirror and no one will ever listen to this podcast again because who cares about COVID? <laughs> and that's, that's certainly what I hope for. Say that again, Ian. I would love to hone in on that, that beautiful, hopeful statement that there is an end in sight because I think I've been surprised in some of my circles that this news that there is not just one, but two, and it looks like multiple in the pipeline vaccines that, right, the data is coming in. They look very safe. They look incredibly effective, like 90 to 95% effective. From And from what I understand, that is very rare. Like there are a lot, like the flu shot is like 50%, you know, they, so much hope. Um, and it's, there's a light at the end. Let's get there. Let's get there together. And I think I've been hearing from a lot of folks like, well, it's just going to go on forever. Well, it's hopeless. Well, it's this, well, it's that. And like, this is a game changer. There, there is hope at the end of the tunnel. And how can we, how should we live now so that we all get there together? As many of us as possible, get there together. Great question. So just addressing the fact that we have a vaccine that's coming out. I'm pausing because I'm trying to come up with the words for how amazing that is. I think, don't quote me on this, but it's somewhere in the ballpark. The fastest time from initiation of research to the release of a viable, safe vaccine was somewhere close to a decade. So when we started this process, and, and by the way, there's never been a successful vaccine against a coronavirus, okay? That's where we were starting from. We don't know if we can make a vaccine against this. If so, we don't know if it's gonna be 10 years from now before we have a candidate. That was really, that's heavy stuff right there. I mean, when you start with this pandemic, you see the mortality, you see the morbidity and you go, okay, our only weapon against this is lockdowns and math. Where are we going with this? What are our lives going to look like this year, next year, 10 years? When are our kids going to be back in school? You know, when can I, you know, see grandma before I run out of time? Those were very real questions, okay? The fact that we have a viable, and like you said, several viable vaccine candidates after a, less than a year 
is incredible. And it's an answer to prayer. Um, it wasn't a guarantee that we would have a vaccine in five years. It wasn't a guarantee we would ever have a vaccine for this. Um, and we do, and it looks safe and it certainly looks very effective. And that is a miracle. Um, we're almost there, you know, the, the schedule that's tentatively in the pipeline is December, January, first responders, people that work in the hospital, people that work in healthcare in the spring, vulnerable populations, people that are very high risk, people in nursing homes, people of retirement age, people with underlying health conditions. And then in the summer and fall, everyone else. And if that bears out, certainly by the fall, um, we should be essentially back to life as normal before the pandemic. If that doesn't happen based on what this, these vaccines say, uh, then something has gone horribly wrong. Uh, you know, and, and I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, this looks like, uh, if people take it, um, that's the schedule that we're on and that's right around the corner. Um, when can we start living more as normal? I mean, once our vulnerable population is vaccinated in the early spring, early winter, that's it. That's it. That's the finish line. You know, we still have some loose ends to tie up from a society perspective, maybe to fully quote unquote reopen. Um, but from an interpersonal standpoint, which is where we, I think we all have suffered the most, that is the finish line. Um, when your parents get vaccinated and you can go over to their house and not be afraid for them, um, that is a huge win. It's a big deal. And it's right around the corner. We're talking a few months from now. So you asked, how should we live now? Well, we've made it this far. Uh, we are how many months in now? Nine, Nine months in. 8,000 actually. <laughs> yeah, it feels that way. Absolutely. It does. Um, we are like maybe nine tenths of the way there, maybe four fifths of the way there. However you, you want to slice the, the fractions. We're almost there. We've learned so much. We can meet outdoors now and not live in fear of that. We don't have to wipe down surfaces now and live in fear of that. We have discovered how to meet indoors safely if you wear a good quality mask, as we've talked about before. So how do you live now? Anything you can do outdoors, do outdoors and do it freely. Don't worry, don't be afraid. Anything you can do indoors, wear a mask and then do it freely. Don't be afraid. Uh, don't take off your mask indoors unless you want to get coronavirus. And if you choose to do that, please make decisions to protect other people. Uh, for two weeks after that event. Um, that's the bottom line. You know, as far as kids in school and should I go back to school or put my kids in, those are all intensely personal decisions and local decisions. Um, they're very different uh, depending on where you live. So I can't make any blanket recommendations there. Um, for example, we have two kids. One is in preschool. He goes to school. Uh, one is in first grade. She stays home because of the local environment, because of how they're structuring their in-person learning, whether we thought one was valuable enough to 
be worth taking a small amount of risk to put them in class. Um, those are two granular decisions for me to make any recommendation other than taking into account the risk profile within your own family, as I talked about before with age, underlying risk factors, et cetera. But the bottom line is it's almost here. It's freaking amazing that we have it, that it seems to be safe. It seems to be extremely effective and it's right around the corner. Um, what about some of the long-term symptoms we're hearing about from folks in more in younger categories? I've been reading recently, they've done tests on high school and college athletes who are even asymptomatic and they've seen long-term organ damage. I've read about long-haul COVID, which tends to, it seems like, strike people in their 50s and 40s and younger. How worried should we be about those things? Because I don't go about my life the way I do because I'm afraid I'm going to get COVID and die. I go about my life in a way that's quite cautious because A, I don't want to transmit it to someone else. That terrifies me. I'm a pastor in normal seasons. I touch hundreds of people a week. You know, like I could take down the whole town if I'm asymptomatic and carrying this to people. But two, I worry about those long lasting health complications of I had COVID, I got better, but I didn't get all the way, you know, and I never even got that sick, but now I can't ride my exercise bike. I can't walk upstairs. Um, talk to me. Those are great, great, great questions. Um, several answers. <laughs> it's too early for us to really know. What does long-haul COVID look like? Well, we're eight months in. I can tell you what eight-month COVID looks like for some people. We have no idea um, if those people that are suffering from chronic fatigue or uh, shortness of breath or these you know, prolonged symptoms will still have them next year or the year after that. It certainly is possible. And there's precedent in other viral illnesses uh, for, you know, we think there's a hypothesis at least within the medical community that viral infection may be a big contributor to chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and these other diseases that are long-term and chronic and seem to affect people in their, you know, younger years, middle age, um, as they get older. Um, one of the interesting things about the pandemic is, or just the nature of a pandemic is in a normal year, a normal everyday virus, okay? Maybe you have 100,000 cases in the year, okay? Well, if your risk of a certain complication, um, let's say chronic fatigue syndrome is one in 100,000, okay? That's a really small risk, okay? In an, from an absolute standpoint. Okay. Um, you take a worldwide pandemic where now you have millions and millions and millions and millions of cases. Then all of a sudden, instead of that one in a hundred thousand, maybe you still have a one in a hundred thousand, but now you have hundreds, maybe thousands of people with that complication. Um, just due to the nature of media and press, those cases get a lot of play. Um, every, I, I would venture to say that probably every person under the age of 20 that has died of COVID has had a news story written about them. I don't think I'm probably exaggerating from that. Certainly in the developed world, those, those things are newsworthy because they're rare. Okay. Um, when you have a worldwide pandemic where you have millions and millions and millions of cases, 
statistically speaking, even something that's very improbable will happen many, 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 many times. And because we have a worldwide media, those cases will get a lot of publicity and will be known. Um, Every one of those cases will have something said about it and something written about it. Now, what am I saying there? What I'm saying is it is very, very difficult for me too to keep in perspective how risky is this to me? Um, How common is long-haul COVID? Uh, What are my chances as a 25-year-old that gets an asymptomatic case of coronavirus that I will have shortness of breath? Those are great questions. Um, I don't have good enough answers. And I don't think anyone does yet. Uh, Because the fact is, we follow the data. The data we've been most concerned about to this point has been mortality. There's not been a lot of good, high-quality studies done with regards to these symptoms. And even, let's say, a study was done in, let's say, we got really started in March. And let's say there was a study done in June. Well, these things take time. So they were probably studying patients from March. Oh, 80% of these people had shortness of breath. Well, they were two weeks out. How does that relate to now? I have no idea. That data isn't addressed by that study. And so the frustrating answer is I don't know. Um, From my own anecdotal experience in the ER, um, having had most of my nursing staff and many of my fellow physicians become infected with COVID, um, most people do just fine. Um, There's maybe one person I can think of in our hospital that still kind of struggles with some fatigue, um, more than you would expect for someone their age. But most people have done fine. Um, so does is that a thing? Is long-haul COVID a thing? Is, these, is this morbidity from this disease a thing? Yes, it's a real thing. I don't think it's particularly common, uh, but it certainly could be more common than we would like. Let me put it that way. It's not... Um, it certainly is much higher risk of that than dying by definition. Okay. <laughs> Not to get in the weeds too much there. Uh, but is, is that a thing? Is it a risk? Yes. Is it a reason to take precautions? Absolutely. I actually do believe that. Um, particularly reasonable precautions. This has been long and rough and we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's, it's not tomorrow. How can our church community be praying for you? specifically not doctors not doctor spouses but the two of you i want to give sonia a shout out here because i think it has been harder for her and she has had to sacrifice more than i have oh i really i mean that i'm not i'm not just saying that i mean i still get to go to work i do the same work that i did before the pandemic uh, particularly now that we know what we're doing it's pretty boring and run of the mill. Um, I'm more of an introvert than she is anyway. So I haven't, my social circle really has not shrunk the same way that Sonia's has. Um, And she's had to sacrifice a lot, a whole lot. And I think a lot of wives of doctors and a lot of wives of everyone have probably had to sacrifice a lot for this. And I really mean that. I just feel like she's had a shorter end of a stick than I have. Um, 
And so I give her a lot of credit for everything she's done in this pandemic. Um, for myself, you know, I guess just that we get there. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, like I said, it's pretty routine. I, I think if we can uh, pray that our, I guess since we're praying for me personally, that my hospital in particular does not get completely overwhelmed numbers wise to where we don't have space or equipment or staff to treat people the way they should be treated. That actually is my prayer for this fall because that's when things go wrong is when you run out of staff and you run out of equipment and you run out of treatments and you run out of oxygen, uh, then people that should do well or would do well cannot do well and can actually die, um, when they shouldn't have, uh, and when they wouldn't have otherwise. So, um, that's why we talk about flattening curves and not breaking our healthcare system is, is for that reason. So if you can pray for my hospital that we not get in that situation, uh, that would be enough for me. I'm on it. We're on it. You got a whole podcast crew out here and they are people who pray. And if you pray this prayer for Ian, would you send me an email and I will forward those on to Ian and Sonia, how can we pray for you? Oh, uh, I think stamina at this point, you know, stamina and, and with the, the surge, we, I don't know, Ian may be called in more to work more unexpectedly. Um, and, uh, you know, I worry about him more than anything. Uh, our, our kids have certainly felt the stress. Um, my five-year-old um, slept with us <laughs> from April till just last week, actually, out of just daddy being gone so much and sensing the anxiety and all that stuff. So just kind of trying to keep the stamina, the wisdom, the the all these things just um, under control and... Uh, yeah, that, that would be the, the big thing. And if you want to shoot a prayer for the artistic community while you're at it out there, guys, like I think like 97% of theater artists have no work. Like my, my colleagues and friends out there, I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm blessed. I'm married to a doctor. He's the primary <laughs> breadwinner in our family. I'm okay, but I have friends who are especially starting December, January or not. Uh, so, and they're, they're having a hard time and, and, you know, we artistic sensitive souls also need our artistic outlets and they don't even have their outlets. So <laughs> if you could just shoot a prayer for the artistic community, cause we, we need art right now. We're going to need some arts to recover from, from the, the depths of, of COVID. We're going to need some art to, to bring us back together. So, and a whole lot of Jesus, of course, too. <laughs> Daryl and I, we we walked on the University of California Irvine campus a couple of days ago, and we go there every summer for their Shakespeare Festival, and they have this outdoor theater, and it's amazing, and it's like, we look forward to it, and it was canceled this year, you know, and just, we're walking by the space where the theater was, and I was tearing up because it's, of the things that this pandemic has stolen from us, that is one of the most painful for me, and I am not an actor, so I imagine for you, Sonia, that that is so painful, um, but... Also, one of the things that has been so sustaining for Daryl and I through this pandemic are the arts and all the ways that we can still consume them, whether that's watching Hamilton on Disney Plus or reading poetry or it just it reminded me that the doctors are saving us, but also the artists are saving us. So 
we will we will pray for you and and for you, Ian, and send those prayers to me, Courtney.ellis at mypcom.com, and I will forward them on. They would be such an encouragement to Sonia and Ian, um, who have been so generous. Thank you guys for your time and for being with our people. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks so much to our special guests, Dr. Ian and Sonia Ellis. Great to have them with us. And do send me a prayer for them. Um, If you're praying for them this week, I know it would boost their spirits very, very much. All right, friends, it's good to be with you. I'll be with you again on Thursday for our special Thanksgiving episode sharing your stories. It is short and very sweet, and it'll go very well with your pumpkin pie or your turkey or whatever it is you're enjoying on that Thanksgiving day. Grateful for you, friends. I'll be with you Thursday. Until then, take care, be well, and God bless.